So this morning, uh, Anju Isaac is going to share her thoughts with us. She and her husband Raj and their children have been with us just a little over a year, and uh, she is now one of our hosts for our life groups. She took that on even though they were in the midst of moving. But from the time they first arrived, I just saw an amazing godly woman. So we look forward to your thoughts this morning, Anju. Okay, good morning. I would like to share about a time when God actually didn't answer the prayers that we were praying. Rather, I should say, he, ans- he didn't answer it as we were hoping him to. My husband was um, studying for an exam, and it was a very crucial exam because uh, his next job uh, uh, was, fo- was, what do you say, dependent on that. And he was studying very hard, and we were praying a lot for that. But about a week before the results came out, uh, I was praying one day, and I read the words that I'm going to ask you to walk on the water. And as soon as I read that, I knew that he was not going to pass the exam, and his contract was finishing up within two weeks, and we were not going to have a job. And I felt this lightning bolt go through me because we we knew that we didn't have the resources to go through such a time. And... (laughs) So uh, I, I, in desperation, I actually flipped the book, hoping that God would give me a different answer. <laughs> but what I read was, um, I'm going to be with you when you walk on the water. It was in a completely different section of the book, and it was just amazing. And two weeks later, when we lost a job, one of the first decisions that we took was, if we are praying to God, and he is our provider, we will not ask anyone else for resources. And that was a very tough decision because, you know, all of our siblings are doing well. All we needed to do was to just pick up the phone and ask them, and, you know, the money would come in and everything would be fine, but we didn't want to do that. But, and um, anyway, the month end came, and all the bills started coming in, and it was, I remember feeling very scared again, but um, uh, eventually we had the courage to go and look into a bank account, and... <laughs> Yeah, to our shock and amazement, there was an amount credited in our, in our account exactly on the month end as if we had a salary coming in, and it was actually the, uh, the amount of my husband's salary. And we, initially we thought uh, something had gone wrong, this, and, but then we realized it was a CRA. And uh, the, this amount was something that we had been uh, communicating with them back and forth for almost three years. And God caused it to come at that exact time when we needed it. And when I, praise God, yeah, when I, and I saw that, I knew that God was going to be with us as we walked on the water, and his promise was, was true. And in the following months, every day was a testimony. And just as God provided for our physical needs, he also refined us spiritually. He challenged us spiritually. And um, he challenged for us to have radical faith in him. And personally, for me, he he challenged me to have more love and more compassion and more humility. And the more I prayed, the more I realized how much uh, a deeper walk he wants all of us to have with him. Thank you for listening. Let's pray. Father, we just praise you so much for the many promises that we find in your word. And one of them is 
that as and you just shared here this morning when we walk on the water that you will be with us so i just thank you for the tremendous power that you showed in the isaac family's life father i thank you for guiding them to us and father we thank you for guiding us here this morning and for another opportunity to be able to see what you have to say to us. And we're we're looking forward to the challenge, Father, as we speak about the harvest, as we speak about the workers that we need to go out and make this harvest for you. So, Father, just thank you again for your love and for the gift of your Son. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Anjou. That was uh, just amazing. Um, If we haven't met before, my name is James. I'm the associate pastor here and just uh, glad to have you here this morning with us. Now, something that we learn as we get older is that simply expressing a desire or a want doesn't yield automatic results, that often you have to to work at trying to see that come about. And and here's an example, and I think most of us, as we reach adulthood, we understand this one. Um, You're standing in front of the mirror at night, and you go, ugh. Um, you're going like, there's a little extra flab there that I, I wish wasn't there. I wish I was a bit um, in better shape, a, a bit more um, buff. And, and you can't just express that desire, go to bed, and then wake up the next morning and like, oh, I'm, I'm ripped now. Like, you, you know you have to exercise, you have to eat right. Like, if that's been your experience, please tell me what words you used exactly, um, because I haven't experienced that. I mean, we, we look at our bank accounts, and we go, oh, I wish I had more in my savings account. That would be awesome. And then you go back to that account five minutes later, and there's not like $10,000 there more because you expressed that desire. Like, you have to save and you have to sacrifice to see that savings account grow. Um, people will often go, um, I wish I had a deeper walk with God. I wish I could have a walk like, with God like that person. And it's like, what's your secret? And the person's not like, well, I just said I wish I had a deeper walk with God and it automatically happened. No, they'll say, I I sought God. Um, I I prayed, I was in the word, I I listened for his spirit. And so we don't simply express a desire and see automatic results all the time. Often you have to work at it. And I'll say it's often in some ways the same with prayer. We've been studying the Lord's Prayer in our Breakthrough series, and we've been looking at the verse, Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, where Jesus, um, he prays, May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, Jesus is praying that God's rule and God's reign would become increasingly present on earth. Now, after Jesus prays this prayer, if you read through the Gospels, what, what does Jesus do? Does, does Jesus say, I've, I've prayed the prayer. Um, now it's, it's all up to you, God. I'm going to take some time off. I'm going to take that vacation to Rome that I've been putting off because I've prayed the prayer. No, no, Jesus, um, he goes to work proclaiming the kingdom after he prays this prayer. He prays and then he works to help bring that prayer about. And we see it in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 through 38. And if you've got your Bible, um, that's where we're going to be most of the morning. But Jesus, it says, traveled through all the towns and villages of that area teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He said to his disciples, The harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. 
Now, I don't know what the largest crowd of people you've ever seen has been. Maybe you've gone to a concert or some sort of sporting event, and you've seen a crowd of thousands. And when you see a crowd of thousands, you can make these general observations about people. You go, that, that, that man is a father, that woman is a mother, um, that, that guy is a Maple Leafs fan, solid guy. Um, you could go, like, that, that girl likes ponies, uh, that, that kid loves Batman, and that guy doesn't know the 70s ended about 35 years ago or something like that. You can make these surface-level observations about people. Now, if, if you look um, in Matthew chapter 8, Matthew will say that large crowds begin following Jesus as his ministry grows. And when they, they saw Jesus, they saw someone who was different than the teachers of the day, someone who gave the people hope, someone who told the people they were known, valued, and loved by God. Now, if you go in Matthew chapter 14, you see this event where Jesus feeds 5,000 men in one sitting. That, it, the, the title would be Jesus Feeds 5,000. But Matthew, kind of at the end of that section, he actually goes, the 5,000 were just the men. There were um, women and children plus. And so we get this idea that, that Jesus is seeing these crowds of probably, even being conservative, 10,000, maybe 15,000 people. And when Jesus looks at these people, I mean, he can make those same surface-level observations that we make about people. Father, mother, sports fan, um, whatever it is. He could make those observations But Jesus also saw way more than we ever see. In John chapter 2, verse 24, it says that Jesus knew all people. He knew what was in each person's heart. He knew what was on every person's mind. And we see this played out in John chapter 4, verse 39. It's the the Samaritan woman at the well. And after she has her conversation with Jesus, what does she run away and tell everybody? This man told me everything I ever did. And if you read John chapter 4, you know that Jesus knows this woman's heart. He knows this woman's mind. And so when Jesus looks at the crowds, yes, he sees the superficial. But he sees the things that we worry about what people would think about us if they only knew them. Jesus sees the depressed, the distressed, the hurting, the lazy, the lonely, the liar, the cheater, the thief, the addict, the glutton, the greedy, the sick, the suspicious, the rich, the poor, the adulterer, the idolater, the murderer, the hypocrite, the prostitute. Jesus sees the sinner. And as good a job as we could do to hide um, our, our sins or our struggles from everybody else, we might be successful in hiding them. We don't get to hide them from Jesus. Jesus sees us as we really are. We don't get to hide it. And yet, and yet, what does it say Jesus has when he looks at the people? Compassion. His heart goes out to the people despite what he sees and he knows about them. He doesn't reject the people, but instead he understands that everything that is unlovely, everything that is despicable, everything that is revolting in any person is the result of sin wreaking havoc on God's creation. He knows that that was never God's intent for them. And he sees that they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And when it says harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, it's referring to a specific problem. And we're going to go to a book we don't often go to, Zechariah chapter 10, um, verse 2. And it says, Household gods give worthless advice. Fortune tellers predict only lies, and interpreters of dreams pronounce falsehoods that give no comfort. So my people are wandering like lost sheep. They are attacked because they have no shepherd. 
And so saying the sheep are without a shepherd is God's way of saying the spiritual leadership has failed to provide um, or to guide and direct God's people as he commands. And so as a result, the people in Israel, they're spiritually lost. They're, They're looking for hope in false religions. They're being led off by false gods. And so the same was happening in Jesus' day. You always hear that he's calling out the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and and they desired influence, they desired power, and they desired praise from others. And in the pursuit of these things, they, they neglected to point the people back to God for guidance, for hope, and for salvation. And instead, they looked at these people who were harassed and helpless, and they despised them. They didn't want to be near them. And so the people are left to themselves without guidance or without hope. And this is why they were attracted to Jesus, because Jesus did not treat them the way that the spiritual leadership had treated them. Now, we like to talk about how humanity is moving forward and progressing with time. But here's the thing. Human nature, it really hasn't changed that much in 2,000 years. If you look around, you will still see plenty of shepherdless sheep today. Now, God created us all to worship. We all worship. The question is, what do we worship? Um, It's not if we worship, but what do we worship? And God gives us a choice. Are we going to worship him or are we going to worship something else? And some people will worship their job, they'll worship money, they'll worship fame, they'll worship power, influence their children, and anything can be worshipped as a god, but not all gods are equal. Um, So if you try worshiping your kids, see what happens when they fail to live up to your hopes and your expectations. Like in the last three weeks, we've gotten, I think, like three or four emails home from Seth's teacher. Like he's got some behavior issues. Like I can't put all my hope in him. Um, if If you worship money, you're going to see relationships strained. Like ask anybody who wins the lottery. It, it, it takes a toll on their relationship. Um, worship, worship your body image, and you're going to die a thousand deaths as you age. Like, since Jane has been born, like the bags under my eyes, way bigger. I've got gray hairs popping up every day, and I didn't even have the kid. Like, the, the women are being like, be quiet, you don't even know. And I get that. Um, forgive me. But, but worship power, and you're going to see your kingdom that you build crumble down around you. And so when times of trial or testing come, we end up perplexed, we end up oppressed, we end up troubled because these things we've called gods or worshipped as gods are powerless to save. And as society has become more secular and moved away from God, why is it so many adults, why is it so many kids are having breakdowns? They're going through um, anxiety. Um, they're, they're looking for help and running to bookstores and reading or looking for something in the self-help section. Why is it a society that seems to have everything is crying out for hope? It's crying out for meaning. And the major reason is because we're worshiping things that were never made to be worshiped. We're hoping they'll do for us what only God can do, and they'll crumble under the weight of being our God. So as culture, as a culture, we've lost our way spiritually. Um, and we need the Lord as our shepherd. And when we worship God as God and live life the way he commands, life actually works better because God's commands are there for his glory, but also there for our good. And so in this moment of compassion, Jesus looks at the crowds and he says, the harvest is great and the workers are few. And Jesus is saying, there's too much work to be done 
by too few workers. And Jesus isn't talking literal agriculture here. He's using it as an analogy. And so the harvest are the people who are harassed and helpless. They are spiritually lost, who've been le- or haven't been led sorry, into the kingdom of God. They are people, eternal souls, who have not come to believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And these people, no matter how good or bad a person we believe them to be, they're not saved. They have no hope of eternal life. These people, they may seem like they have it all together. But if you look at them through the eyes of Christ, you're not fooled by their shell of self-assurance. You're going to see people desperate for meaning, hope, love, and truth. People in need of a shepherd. The workers are Jesus' disciples, those who have put their faith and trust in him as Lord and Savior. These are Christians who are commanded by God to love God, to love people, and commissioned to go out and spread the good news about Jesus Christ. And we're going to get to the Lord of the harvest, which is God. And Jesus is saying there's too many people who are facing a, a hopeless, eternal death and not enough people to bring the good news about Jesus Christ to them, to bring them into relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've ever stopped and considered the enormity of the task that Jesus left with his disciples in Matthew 28 before he ascends into heaven. I'm like paraphrasing it, but Jesus says, um, go or make disciples of all nations, baptize them, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Now, if I'm one of Jesus' 11 disciples there on that day, as he's talking and I'm hearing his vision, I might be kind of going like, I'm sorry to interrupt Jesus, but were you expecting more people? Um, Because I've counted, I've recounted, there's 11 of us. We're down a man because of what Jews did. And then you've got Thomas, he's always doubting. And then there's, there's Peter, and I love you, man, but you're kind of unpredictable, a loose cannon. Like, maybe we should scale this back a little bit, Jesus. Like, let's, let's scale it back. But the great supreme challenge of Christianity from the beginning is that the entire world is to be reached with the gospel. And this command still applies today. And we might look at our home, our city, um, our province, our country, the nation, uh, the world, and we might go, this is too much. Like, I don't know if this can be done. Um, I know I've got the spirit in me, but this, this is really big. Like, I'm only an individual, and there's only so many churches. But D- Jesus doesn't overwhelm us with the burden for lost people and say, like, see, there's a lot of work to be done, and so you better get at it. You better um, pull up your bootstraps and get to it, because there's a lot to be done. No, Jesus said there's too much work to be done by too few workers. So, pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest, Ask him to send more workers into his fields. And he's saying there's relief and reinforcements for this enormous task found in prayer. That's what Jesus is saying. And we can't lament the size of the task if we haven't actually done what Jesus has told us to do. We can't complain that there's too much work to be done if we haven't prayed and asked and pleaded with God to send more people out into his fields to make disciples of all nations. But, but an important question to ask is actually, do you see um, the need for more workers? Do you actually see the need for more workers? This is the point in the sermon, if, if Greg was up here speaking, he would say this. Um, back when I was growing up in Hazel Grove, Prince Edward Island, um, on the family farm, we would have a harvest every year, and then he'd go on to a huge story about that. I grew up in a subdivision on PEI. I can tell you about fist fighting, biking, and ball hockey. That's what I can tell you. But I do know this about the harvest. 
The harvest is a season. A harvest does not go on forever. There's a limited time to get the crops in from the field. Do you agree, Greg? Awesome, I got the nod of approval. (laughs) Now, Jesus is pointing out that the time for lost people to be saved is not going to go on forever. There's always an opportunity for a person to accept Christ as long as they're living, but at the time of their death, the opportunity for salvation, it, it comes to an end. So this is a person's opportunity. There's not this second chance. But it's not just death we have to consider. The season of harvest will come to a close when Christ returns. And we we don't know when Christ will return. It could be tomorrow. It could be 2,000 years from now. It could be longer. But our job is not to worry about the length of time until the harvest ends. Our job is to do the work of the harvest as long as it continues. So as long as a person has breath in their lungs, it is not too late for them to be saved. It doesn't matter who they are or what they've done. Jesus' invitation to be saved is open to anyone who would come. Now, I think it's important that we understand also um, the enormity of what Jesus is calling us to do. We shouldn't read Jesus' command, make disciples of all nations, and go, yeah, I think we can do this. No sweat. Like, we should sweat it a little because Jesus' vision for the kingdom of God is enormous. We should realize that we need God. And if we're at a point where we can say to ourselves um, and, and like look at what Jesus is calling us to do, when we don't feel the need to plead with God to send out more workers, what does that say about us as a church? What does that say about our understanding of Jesus' kingdom? What does that say about our, our compassion and love for the lost? What it says is that we've shut our eyes and our ears to those people. We don't mind if they remain harassed and helpless, and we're all right with people going to hell. We should see the enormity and the urgency and plead with God to send out more. And notice Jesus doesn't offer this as a suggestion. This this is a command to pray. And I think Jesus is telling us to pray this prayer because he knows that when we pray this prayer and ask for more workers, it's going to cause us to ask this question. Am I working? Am I harvesting? Am I in the fields? And in praying this prayer, God may cause you to realize that you're actually the answer to the prayer that you're praying. Every disciple has been sent out to the fields to harvest And many people, they'll say, but I'm not an evangelist. I'm not a missionary. I'm not a pastor. I'm not an elder. I can't preach. I can't teach. Um, And so many times, and so many people have kind of bought into this idea that that the the work of the harvest has been left to a select few, the the professionals, and, and the rest of us, we kind of just watch the harvest go on. And Jesus does not call some of us as disciples to be laborers during the harvest and others to be loitering during the harvest. He calls us all to work. There's not downtime during the harvest. No Christian is out of a job during the harvest. There's no retirement from the harvest. A time is not going to come when you are not needed for the harvest. God has multiple fields, and throughout our lives, God may move us to different parts of his fields depending on our stage of life, our abilities, or just simply where he needs us. But the question you have to ask yourself is, are you laboring during the harvest, or are you loitering during the harvest? And understand, prayer is part of the work. And Jesus is saying that the more workers there are, the greater the harvest is going to be. Like, we have to understand people's eternities are at stake here. Now, the question we might 
have, and, and like when we read this, is go, why doesn't God just send out more workers? Why are we told that we have to ask for more? It seems strange that the workers would be told to beg the Lord of the harvest to send out more workers into his harvest because Jesus clearly teaches God is omniscient, that God is fully aware of all things. And he's not implying that God does not know there is a shortage of workers. And Jesus would not be implying that God does not care whether or not the harvest comes in, whether people are saved or not. And so why are the workers to plead for more help? from the Lord who is fully aware of the state of the harvest. And there's actually one reasonable answer when you consider all of this. God has decided that the miraculous work of a great harvest will be preceded by prayer. God has decided that when his people pray, their efforts and the amount of workers will be multiplied John Piper, he said this, God loves to bless the world, but even more, he loves to bless the world in answer to prayer. It is God's way before he does a great work to pour a spirit of supplication upon his people so that they plead for the work. Therefore, the sign that God is going to bring in the harvest will be a widespread movement of prayer among his people. God wants us to pray so that we can see the difference that he makes, that we will understand that life and ministry are far more fruitful with him than when we try and do it in our own strength or in our own efforts. Now, like after Jesus ascends to heaven, you have this small group of people known as the church, 120 people max. And they're, they're kind of hiding out. They're scared, trying not to be found. And what do they spend the most of their time doing? They pray. And then one day, God moves. The Spirit comes upon the church, and 3,000 people are believed and are believe and baptized in one day. Charles Spurgeon, he, he was a 19th century preacher in London, and he was credited with bringing thousands upon thousands of people um, to faith in the Lord through his, his preaching at his church. And people would always come and visit him and go, what is your secret? How do you do it? And Spurgeon would essentially say, just follow me. And he'd lead them down into the basement of the church and they would find a room full of thousands of people on their knees praying for the services that were going on upstairs. And what Spurgeon would say is that prayer or this basement is the engine of this church. Because without prayer, the church will not move. In July 1857, a businessman named Jeremiah Lanfier was appointed as a city missionary in downtown New York by the Dutch Reformed North Church. And so that church had been shrinking because people had been moving out of the downtown core um, to different parts of the city that just were, were much more enjoyable for living. And so Jeremiah's job was to visit the neighborhoods in the downtown and try and um, bring people to, to attend the church, um, essentially drum up church attendance. And so the task was immense, but, but Jeremiah decided, you know what, what I'm going to start with is a, a prayer meeting. And he said, we'll have a prayer meeting every Wednesday starting September 23rd. And so in order to spread the word, he distributed a pamphlet, which he sent, like, there was a bit more to it, but he essentially said, um, we're inviting you to a time of prayer every Wednesday from 12 to 1 at the north, um, sorry, at the, at the church. And so, um, he started that September 23rd. And so on September 23rd at 12 o'clock, Jeremiah, he, he unlocks the door and, and he waits. Five minutes pass, nobody comes. 10 minutes pass, nobody's there. 20 minutes comes, nobody's there. 12.30 and Jeremiah's like, just worried. 
He's anxious. He's going, this is not going to work. But between 12.30 and 1, six people slowly trickled into that prayer meeting. The next week, 40 people were in attendance. The next month, they decided to hold the meeting daily instead of weekly. And by March of the next year, 10,000 men were gathering daily for prayer in New York. Within two years of that meeting, one million converts had been added to the American church, many as a result of those prayer meetings. And all that started with one man's decision to hold a weekly prayer meeting. And God has decided in his wisdom that prayer will precede the harvest. Prayer will precede the harvest. Why? Ask yourself, do you really want to be trying to bring people into eternal salvation in your own wisdom, in your own strength, in your own abilities, or would you rather have God involved? So how will we know if God is going to do something powerful through us at HCC to increase the harvest? I I think the answer is actually quite simple. Um, If there's a movement of prayer amongst us, I think we can expect the harvest. I I don't know exactly what that harvest will look like. I don't know exactly what God's moving amongst us would look like. But I do know that if there is not a movement of prayer amongst us, I don't think we should expect a harvest. God has decided prayer will precede the harvest. But how many lost people could be saved? How many harassed and helpless could be helped if we began to pray that God would send out more workers into his fields? I open the message by saying you can't just express a desire and expect results. Often you have to um, work at it to see that desire come about. And, And we can't just pray for God's kingdom to come and then do absolutely nothing about it. God calls us to work in his fields, but at the same time, we can't just work without prayer and expect the results. God's kingdom comes as we pray and work according to his will. And please realize that part of our work as disciples is to pray the things that Jesus tells us to pray about. And so this week, I'm asking you to pray for these four things because prayer is is participation in the work of God. Um, we'll post them online or something like that later. We'll be going through them kind of quick. But first, um, I'm asking you to pray these things. Pray that we would see people the way Jesus saw them, with compassion. Ask that we would see the immense possibility for the harvest around us. Pray that God would send out more workers into his fields, into our city, our country, into the world. Um, ask God to reveal to you where he is sending you. And some of you are going, I don't want to pray that prayer because I don't want to, like, I don't want to go to a far-off country. Like, I like it here. I don't know where God will send you. God might just be saying, like, I'm just trying to send you, like, across the office. That's all I'm trying to send you. God might say, yeah, actually, I need you to move to India or something like that. I don't know. Like, who knows? But pray that God would pour out a spirit of prayer also at HCC that we would actually become a people of prayer. Ask that God would move amongst us and stir our hearts to action, that, that we would know that prayer is going to precede this harvest. Now, if we've been going through this and you're going, um, by the way you talk, I don't sound like a worker. I sound like I'm more in the harvest. That's okay. Um, Jesus' invitation is open to you, and I'd love to talk to you more about that. You can talk to me at the front after the service or, or phone or email the church. But that invitation, um, it's always open. But if we actually want God's kingdom to come, 
our prayers are going to precede the harvest. If there is a movement of prayer amongst us, I think we can begin counting the days until the harvest begins. I want to close with Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 15. And Paul writes, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news.